My conversation with Dr. Niang couldn't just end there. I mean, I wanted to ask him some more deep questions. Questions like, is Christianity a white religion? And if not, how does it speak to the lives of brown and black people when it comes to issues like mass incarceration? His answers may surprise you. So join us as we continue this deeper conversation. The kind of competition, colonization, or the colonial officials introduced Mm -hmm. um, worsened the situation that actually was there handled by elders in a better way. And here it is, competition. Or let me use another word that you hear quite often, divide and rule. So the divide and rule, if I take the case of my culture, when the Holy Ghost Fathers came first, they began to learn the culture. They started learning the culture. But all of a sudden, the particularism started. Hmm. By particularism, they started comparing themselves with the Africans. And you can see the accounts of explorers, Mm -hmm. the accounts of Mm -hmm. uh, merchants who came to Africa with uh, accounts that actually look, uh, were demeaning to Africans, began to be reappropriated by some of the missionaries and now began to use those to filter their ideas as they encountered Africans. There was a whole literary genre to describing the Africans and the indigenous people. It was like King Kong. Yes. It was, they were huge men who who had an insatiable, unrelenting desire for sex because they saw a polygamist society. And so they just, all the men were very sexual, all the women were very promiscuous. I mean, there were, but there were books written in genres. And so the, the first introduction to Europeans many times who had not traveled to Africa, who did not know, they read stories of Africa and believed that all Africans were King Kong. That's the perspective I've thought we needed to revisit, Mm. that you just highlighted. And that basically made some Africans have a complex of inferiority. Mm. So then the the good thing to do is, I want to be accepted. And so to be accepted, what do you do? To be thought of as civilized, what do you do? And take on. You, you take on that culture that is not part of your own culture. I'm not saying blacks and whites should not have a conversation, should not relate to one another. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying, based upon those accounts, those of us, my ancestors, had a difficult time redefining who they were. They're being told you're a savage. You don't count for anything. You contributed nothing to world civilization. Here is a good culture transplanted from Europe. You take this. It'll make you a better person. It will introduce you to the world market. Change your agricultural practices. You see, it's one after the other. So then imagine then being sold the, uh, I call it a bill of goods, right? Being sold that view of looking at who you are You have to redefine yourself. Your identity has to change. Uh, And in the end, who are you? What 
every follower of Jesus who is not Jewish, what they should be reminded of is to read constantly Acts 15 before they engage in objectification of other people, before they engage in the privatization of the biblical text. So then the question is, what is Acts 15? Acts 15, that's where the early church, if Luke is right, Mm -hmm. they had a conference. And the conference was, they were trying to negotiate ways in which they can accept non-Jews. And the word we hear is what? Gentiles. Do you hear that? Mm -hmm. And when you mention the word Gentiles, you're virtually saying what? Non-Jews which all of us who are not Jewish Mm -hmm. should be reckoning to. White, non-white. Do you see? Mm -hmm. So when I read Acts 15, it's almost a constant reminder that what we're fighting over turning the biblical text or turning Christianity into a white religion, maybe reading Acts 15 will help us understand, oh, wait a minute, no, it's from Judaism. I will say that a question arose, how do we, and I don't remember it verbatim, but how do we correct the wrongs of that, you know, misguided or uninformed uh, maybe unenlightened in some situation, ministers, friends, and family uh, churches have when it comes to these texts of just the inclusion of people, who the Gentiles are, or that this isn't just a white religion, or that the scriptures were not used properly, you know, when it came to women, or when it came to LGBTQ+, when it came to uh, people of color, when it came to Africans, that the question was, how do we fix that? I think the best way that we can address these divisive trends of reading the Bible is by us reading it first and then practicing what it says. It's very hard to practice inclusion and have someone, an onlooker, saying, what are they doing? That was the early Christian message. Hospitality. The early Christians, they were known for accepting the rejected. If we do the same thing in our 21st century, I think that, was, that will go a long way. Yeah. I understand seminars have their places. Offering an articulate, articulate lecture is, is good. Mm-hmm. Um, hearing a, a scholar throw a fit for 15 minutes about how we should love one another, it, it's good. But I prefer, just do it. Do it and then see what happens. Yeah. Do it and then you have something to explain. Now you're preaching. Huh? I said, now you're... Uh- yeah, yeah, yeah. See, there's the thunder. See, even the heavens hurt you. Now you're preaching. You just do it, and then you have something to fall back upon and let people say, they will not even ask you. They'll say, we see what you're doing. 
I think that that's part of how we started the conversation with the read the Bible, read the Bible. And so we read the Bible and we spit it back out. We spit it back out in all these various forms of, this is, we know we've got steps as well. There's five steps to a better marriage. There's five steps to find a husband. There's five points to God's star that led them to Jesus. There's five. And with all of this, I think that we are really missing the core of what you're saying. Just do it. Like Nike's slogan, just do it. Where's the embodiment? Because every other religion that I have encountered, which is not... I don't profess to know all the world's religions, but the few that I've encountered have a practice. We look at Muslims or Nation of Islam and say, you know, oh, they annoy us. They're always doing that praying in the corner. They have their mats out at the airport and at these places. But I am amazed, mouth open in awe, that people are upset that someone is practicing a spirituality because the Buddhists, they practice their spirituality, yeah. their connection to the power that is greater than themselves, that I call God. And in Christianity, I think, in my limited view um, of the world, we have a big issue with a practice. We like to get somewhere one and done. We want to check off the list. If I just do these things, I'm a Christian. If I pay my tithes, I'm a Christian. If I get baptized, I'm a Christian. If, but I think that we forget that it is a daily practice. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what you just mentioned is actually the enculturation of the movement of Jesus in the Western context. I'm glad you brought up that word because yeah. it was in your book and I enjoyed yes. that section. So that enculturation of the message of Jesus uh, means the message of Jesus will find a home in every context it finds itself. Now, if that context is checking off less oriented, that's what you get. <laughs> so, so even though there's other Christians or the followers of Jesus in the Western world who say, no, no, that's not the way you do it. But those, uh, it's a minority. This is another reading of scripture, again, lifted out of context. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. You're done. Do you see, this is the problem? Okay, good. Will you read on? It's not just confessing, but also there's this practicality that comes with it. But that's not what we offer. Oh, well, call on the name of Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Period. And I'm done. And we delete the rest. The practical dimension is crucial in Pauline churches, it was also crucial in the ministry of Jesus. Because what's interesting when you read the gospel, what you discover is that, yes, Jesus taught. But if you were to go through the Bible and document every teaching segment, you begin to see that, what about the rest? What, what did Jesus? You begin to see the doing, the doing, the doing, healing. Um, doing things. I mean, it just, it, it's just amazing when you focus on the deeds of Jesus and then balance them with what he taught. You begin to see a very interesting picture. I think that the pushback that we have in our communities with practice is if it's a practice, how much of a drug can it be? Yeah. Because many of us use Sunday morning as a, as a drug. 
It's, a, it's an ointment, it's a fix, it's the escape from what my life has been Monday through Saturday. And so I can come here, if not on Sundays, five, six times a week and just escape. And it becomes a, how loud can the music be? How great can we shout? How, how much fire and brimstone can we? But it becomes a drug, something that we're addicted to doing instead of something that we're practicing. Yeah, we always forget that that environment, the location in which that loud music goes on, they'll come 12 o'clock or 1 o'clock or 2 o'clock. Mm-hmm. We're stepping right back to where the real-life situations are, where we actually call to do the practical thing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I, I, I see that. You know what? Um, it's very difficult to be a follower of Jesus. Yes. yes, you can say that and put it, it on a T-shirt. Yes, it, it is very difficult to be a follower of Jesus. It, it's a noble task. It's also a privilege, but also very difficult. Why? Because to love someone who's spitting on your face, it's very difficult to do. Yes. And to conscientize such a person to become a friend, it's another problem. Uh, and this is why some early readers of Jesus, some think that the ethics that Jesus, that they read of in, the, in, in Jesus' teaching, specifically the Sermon on the Mount, um, is too idealistic. Uh, it's impractical. Um, but I do believe that it can be practiced. I believe that we can always Try it. It's in the trying that we become aware of its effectiveness. Mm-hmm. But by hearing it and not trying um, makes it impossible. It makes it something we love to hear, but don't tell me to do it. And I think the challenge to not place it all on the pastors uh, for their Sunday role uh-huh. um, is that it is challenging. It is downright oh, yes. an arduous, never-ending task to one day, a couple of hours a week, I see you and I'm trying to give you this thing, trying to give you some sort of enlightenment, some sort of tool. And then the rest of your week, you go and you live in a completely different environment and operate in a completely <laughs> different environment that becomes your teacher. So your minister sees you for a few hours a week. The world becomes your teachers, the television, the media, the neighborhood. And how you bump heads with that, I think, is the arduous task of not only being a believer, but being a minister uh, in these contexts. Yeah. That comes back to, in my own understanding, is... um, Life of faith is challenging, as I just said. I use the word following Jesus, but also uh, this life of faith is is challenging whether you are a Christian or Muslim or or any particular faith tradition. Uh, It's always challenging because that faith points you toward doing the right thing. And, uh, And I think that's where Christianity, Islam, and or the faith tradition converge in, doing the right thing. 
Uh, so, but doing the right thing becomes challenging in the community, hmm. where some might reject your perspective. Um, and Paul encountered that with the Corinthians, where some think they know more than you do, where some might even venture to say, you don't pray enough. And as a Baptist, I, I hear people talking about things like that. Uh, you don't pray enough. Uh, or uh, you don't have faith enough. Mm. Or in some settings, um, you don't speak in tongues enough. Do you see? So we always, and forget that those gifts, they're there. But there's another dimension of life that's very challenging. It's to actually exercise those gifts. Yes. Knowing that you don't possess them, they're gifts. Uh, so when it comes to faith where Jesus didn't tell his earlier followers to write down what he was saying, he wanted them to hear. Let he who has an ear to hear, hear. Hear with the idea that that memory will be embodied. Embodied through practical experience. And then through practical experience, you explain how was this possible for you. That's why testimonies work. Mm. I see it now. Because testimony people connect. Ah, I hear you. Oh, I've been there. Deeper Conversations is brought to you by Poor Culture. We do church different. To a world built on the backs of slaves, we must never forget. We must never forget that the evils of slavery are still alive today. And much like Deeper Conversations, I vow to keep the conversation on slavery alive in hopes that it never happens again. Join us at neveragain.com. That's N-V-R-A-G-N.com. That's N-V-R-A-G-N.com. Never again. Followers of Christ in America should make a concerted effort to revisit the story of Paul, who became the champion of the story of Jesus. You're asking for a whole revolution. No, yes, because, because of this, because of this. Um, we have prisons filled with people we call criminals, mm -hmm. okay? Now tell me, who was Paul in the eyes of early Christians, earliest followers of Jesus? Paul was a terrorist. Good. Now imagine, imagine standing behind people who are incarcerated and making the case for how good they are how conscientious they are, how contributive community members they would become. Try to make that case. And I think we, churches in, uh, around America, oh, that would, uh, that would be the good news to practice. That's why I say you're asking for a complete revolution. Oh, yeah. I know you know this, but I'm like, what you are saying is that we have to, at some point, be able to hear someone else's conversion. Oh, yeah. Because if we can't accept theirs, we really are saying we can't accept our own. And if we can't accept the fact that we have been converted, are being converted, 
then we'll never be able to accept that someone who's done something wrong anywhere yeah. can be converted. In that kind of imaginary, that kind of frame of reference, the incarcerated person who ventures to give a witness or a testimony, uh, we should not allow that to happen in the church. We should do that for them because they will not be heard. Revolutionary. Oh, yes, they will not be heard. Paul's case, Paul needed someone else to stand behind him and talk to others and say, Look, I know who this person is. Hmm. Because I know who he is. Oh, was. yeah. You see him out as a terrorist. That's not what I see. I see God at work. You watch. And if you have any question, ask me. I think the church needs to take that position and visit prisons and begin that work. And I stand with you there. We need to stand behind them and speak for them. They may need to speak every now and then, but what will make that work? I think the challenge is asking someone else to watch them means that we have to watch them as well. And we have become comfortable with people who are incarcerated yeah. being out of sight, out of mind. But I think that we are missing an opportunity to witness oh, yeah. something as beautiful as a birth, which is a rebirth. This is important to me to have these conversations. I operate my organization, Poor Culture, off of the scripture Luke 4, 18 and 19. Oh, yeah. That is Jesus directed. He says, you know, that I have come to minister the good news of the gospel to the poor. Yes. And to give sight to those who can't see properly and to set the captives free and to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Setting the captives free, part of that is physically. And to be there, it also is a mental thing. And I think that we don't listen. We tend to, as Christians, uh, which I, I'm working on improving upon as well, is listening. We tend to believe as ministers, guides, uh, Sunday school teachers that we know the information and that it is our job to give it to you. And I think that if we take a more balanced approach mm -hmm. to listening, that we would be surprised at the things that children could teach us. Yeah. Uh, be surprised at the scholars and the just the, the mental acumen that is in the jail cells. Yeah. I think we would be educated, yeah. we would be ministered to, yeah. and then we can properly speak on behalf oh, yeah. of them. Yeah. And, and the other thing I'll add to something you just said, and that what we're giving them is actually magical. Hmm. All they have to do is believe it. Well, <laughs> I have no problems with faith. But faith that doesn't have a practical dimension, mm -hmm. that doesn't have concrete evidence in relational terms. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's faith. That's the book of James. James is saying, well, you have all this faith. Great. <laughs> where is it? Yes. Um, excuse me? Where is it? What James is asking is, faith itself has is a two-sided coin. Mm -hmm the act of believing, and the assiduous practical dimension without seeing results. I heard a student say recently, when is our time to lament? When is our time to cry out? And 
I would say that this, this Bible stuff, this Jesus believing, gives us examples and inspiration for just that and being around communities of other people, giving their testimony, uh, being a com in community where acts of faith are done daily. And they, they will have mishaps. That's what practice is, oh, yeah. is that it's not perfect. Yeah. Um, but that I think that that is essential yeah. to our community in seeing the Bible, seeing its origins. Uh, as we still ask, ask the question today, how do I be Christian? Yeah. Um, I think these are essential. And I would just like to ask you a few questions sure. to rapid fire. Right. What or who is God? Um, the answer to this question always makes me turn to humanity. Somehow the Bible tried to communicate that, that we are made in God's image. So I don't focus more on transcendence, but the eminence is crucial for me. Uh, because God for me is turning around and looking at humanity and creation. And that's where I see God. Veiled, not fully, left for me to learn daily. What, finish the sentence, what the world needs now is? What the world needs is to look at humanity as part of God's life. Hmm. And maybe with that, religiously inspired violence, gender objectification, the white and black dichotomy, all those, maybe will be circumvented and looked at differently from the vantage point of looking at God in that dimension. Why, why does this matter? And when I say this, why does this Bible conversation, why does the Bible and following Jesus and Christianity, why does this matter? It matters because it's, in the end, it's not about the colonizer. It's not about the best preacher. It's not about the best Bible teacher. It's not about the white. It's not about just the black. It's not about just the brown. It is about God's life that is in all of us. Thank you.